It's July 15, 2015, and welcome to another and special edition of Bite Mart Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And today we are dedicating this hour to the solar impulse, an ambitious around-the-world journey powered purely by the sun. And in the studio today, we have Andre Borschberg and Gregory Blatt. Andre is the man in the cockpit of Solar Impulse 2 and its journey from Japan to Honolulu, breaking world records and setting an endurance milestone in aviation. He was a jet pilot in the Swiss Air Force and a successful businessman before co-founding the Solar Impulse Project, sharing piloting duties with explorer Bertrand Picard. And meanwhile, Gregory is the managing director responsible for marketing and communications for the Solar Impulse and was part of a coordinated global team charged with the task of spreading the word about the project and sending the message of what is possible even without burning fossil fuels. The Solar Impulse plane and its crew is in Honolulu, but uh, their schedule is always unpredictable, so we're happy to have the ability to catch Andre and Gregory during a rare break. And that means today's broadcast is pre-recorded, so we won't be able to take any of your calls. But uh, as we record this show, Solar Impulse is preparing to make an important announcement about their mission, and we can now talk about it here for our broadcast in this program. So let's get to know Solar Impulse. Andre and Gregory, welcome to Bite Marks Cafe. Thank you very much. Great pleasure to be with you. So I know that uh, there's a big announcement. I want you. I want to give you the opportunity to share it with our audience. Uh, what's what's happening? What's the latest news on on Solar Impulse? The latest news is that we are extremely happy to announce that we will stay longer in Hawaii than what we uh, have expected. Aloha. Well, that's uh, okay. So the latest was uh, that uh, there was a plan for maybe August, but are we are we looking for a uh, a little extension beyond August? Yeah, people have been so nice here, you know, so <laughs> welcoming when we arrived. We said we cannot leave so quickly. No, uh, without uh, joking, you may have, uh, when we uh, did the flight five, uh, a few uh, days ago, that we had some difficulties and uh, overheating of the batteries. I don't know if you followed that during the mm-hmm. flight. Yes. But this was one of uh, our concerns. And uh, after checking what happens, uh, we came to the conclusions that we preferred to change these uh, batteries before going further into the flight around the world. And it's, uh, you know, it's not so simple. It's not like changing the battery of a car. Mm -hmm. It's a bit more complex. Uh, So it will take more time. And uh, which means that we'll stay here for, uh, for a few weeks, for a few months. And as it takes this time, uh, it's going to be too late for us to be able to cross the second part of the ocean towards Phoenix. It's going to be too late in the season. Uh, The days will be shorter, the nights will be longer, which of course makes it more difficult for a solar-powered airplane. Mm -hmm. And that's the reason why we have asked, you know, for the hospitality here in Hawaii for uh, for the winter. Well, well, that sounds good. I'd like to hear more about those batteries. Now, we did read that there it was basically an endurance challenge, not just for you, but for the technology. And certainly when you are taking those five days, uh, gathering all that energy during the day and expending it during the evening, that's not a task that your car battery is necessarily up to. Uh, but these are not batteries that you can buy at Best Buy or some some uh, you know automotive shop. I mean, these are specially developed. So uh, that's part of the delay. How long would it take, do you think, to, to reconstruct or to be able to repair? the batteries that you have. No, that's true that they are special, but it's not, uh, it's not because they are special that we had this difficulty. In fact, mm. the, uh, the challenge came uh, as we uh, decided to combine two flights in one. First, a test flight or a maintenance flight when we left Japan, 
just followed with the mission flight of five days, five nights. And the, uh, this uh, maintenance flight was quite demanding. And we decided to go very quickly at high altitude, go down again, and then re-climb to 9,000 meters, which is normally the altitude we have to go every day. And the combination of both was uh, uh, too stressful for the batteries in terms of temperature. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, so the temperature increased, and as we were flying another five days, five nights after these test flights, we were unable to bring it down again. So we managed not to go over the limit, uh, but it was uh, it, we believe it's too high. And uh, it's a sensitive part of it, of the airplane. And as it's sensitive, we don't want to take any risk on this for safety reasons, mm -hmm. obviously. And we prefer to change the entire uh, battery pack. And, of course, it takes time to the manufacturer to produce. That's about 600 kilograms. That's about 1,500 pounds of batteries. Huh? Mm. Same time of batteries or similar time of batteries that you have on your computer, that you have on your portable phone. Uh, so it's a lot of them, and it will take a few months, in fact, to manufacture them and, of course, to uh, uh, integrate them in the airplane again. Mm -hmm. um, Gregory, I mean, in terms of that, uh, the, that kind of integration and the sensitivity of the, of the mission, when you, um, in coordinating things on the ground, uh, we, Bert and I, were watching the, the, the battery readouts on the Internet, and you could show them discharging and coming in. Um, can you kind of paint a picture for us when you're saying that these, these batteries were glorious but pushed to their limits? Um, uh, is it the, was that something that you could tell remotely, or was only something that became clear when the plane was finally back on the ground here in Honolulu? Well, the great thing about our project is although we only have one pilot, a lot of people can fly with us, and we broadcast live, as you mentioned, and our viewers and supporters and followers can um, actually see the same instrumentation um, that Andre sees, um, exactly how it is laid out on the plane, and they can hear the mission control center, which Andre talks to as well. So they were following this, um, um, this development of the batteries, so they understood the challenges. I have to say that our mission control team did a spectacular job because mm -hmm. they had to change the flight profile on how Andre went up and down, how he descended and ascended, not to overheat the batteries any further. So they managed by changing the flight profiles to not reduce the temperature, but at least keep it at a constant at a constant level. And, of course, people were able to follow that. And those who know a little bit about engineering and, of course, about flying could quickly realize that, you know, that, there, that, there was, that we were significantly challenged on this front. So now, making those on-the-fly adjustments is certainly something that we, that's exhilarating about watching this project. And I know that part of the reason why things got more complicated given your arrival in Hawaii and looking to go further is that there were other complications and unexpected things with weather patterns and windows for, for traveling. Um, so the trip from uh, China to Hawaii became a trip from Japan because you had to uh, make a diversion because of the changing weather conditions. I mean, how does that impact what such a large team of people that are are, are trying to basically help uh, pilot a ship, but um, with such a huge team involved? Well, it requires uh, certainly a lot of flexibility and being able to adapt at the last minute. The, the challenge for the, the ocean crossings is um, predicting the weather. And we know weather... We're pretty certain of weather two, three days in advance, um, but we don't know the weather four or five days in advance. So we have to go right up to the departure. We see a, a possible day, and then at the last moment, it may be confirmed or canceled. And we saw good weather to leave um, uh, China, but after the first day, we saw the front closing on the Pacific, mm -hmm. and pilot safety, airplane security is, is, is paramount of importance. 
Hence, we uh, did a diversion to Japan. Mm-hmm. Now, it's Andre, uh, it's interesting because it's also increased the uh, the stress level of uh, all of us. Because, of course, when we have windows that you reject uh, for a certain number of good reasons, then you have a window that you take but you decide to divert. Then we had another window that we accepted, and at the last minute before takeoff, we s- decided not to go. So I went out of the cockpit on the runway again. <laughs> But it's uh, it, it's a stress which is accumulating on the team, and it was difficult for everyone to uh, to make sure that we were not pushed by the pressure from outside, you know, to take any windows just to move forward. Mm-hmm. So we had to refrain from that and make sure that uh, that we were not uh, too much under pressure. Mm-hmm. And this lasted for a few weeks, so that was quite hard. So when you said that uh, you had sort of combined both a uh, test maintenance flight with the actual Trans-Pacific flight. Uh, and and people were monitoring the batteries and how you went to a certain elevation, come back down. When you landed here in Hawaii, was it already uh, a sense that you had that maybe there was uh, something that had affected the batteries? Because when you once I think you, the the um, the aircraft landed, it seemed like there was uh, an optimism of perhaps uh, you know being able to leave in a, in about a week. So um, were there <clears throat> indications that led you to start to think that? Well, we we better really check out these batteries because maybe they were stressed beyond the deg- degree that we can actually do another Trans-Pacific flight. Now we knew that uh, some of them has been overstressed, so we knew that we had to change some of them. Okay. And we have some spare, uh, but looking at the question more deeply and being not able to really uh, uh, um, answer the questions of for the batteries who maybe was just close to the limit if they were still. In, in a perfect shape, we decided to change all of them mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. to avoid to take risk. And then when we decided to change all of them, of course, then we understood that we didn't have enough replacements and that it would take more time. And this, that's you know why, in fact, we decided to ask for the authorization to stay here mm-hmm. for, uh, for the winter. And, and I, I noticed there's, that there's, no, there's nothing bad about spending more time in Hawaii. Now, uh, I want to talk about the other limitations. Certainly, the battery was a significant part, and we saw a lot of reporting on that. But it is the weather, this shortening of the days. I mean, basically, your flight over the Pacific, you maximized as much time in the sun as you could. So is the tolerance that tight when you're talking about a day that might be 40 minutes shorter uh, later this year to not get the energy that you need to complete a flight to the, the United States mainland? Well, first we have to understand the, uh, the, uh, the, the challenge. Uh, the challenge is to fly uh, many days, many nights, I mean, almost in an unlimited way. I mean, this airplane can fly in months. Uh, but it gets its energy only during the day. And mm-hmm. so during the day, with the energy we get from the sun, we need to be able to fly. We need to be able to climb to 28,000 feet, which is almost the altitude of the airliners. At the same time, we need to fill the batteries. Uh, And to be able to do that, we need an airplane which is extremely energy efficient. So when, you know, we built up this airplane and we started the project, we understood that the project was more about energy management, energy efficiency, than just building a simple simple airplane. So Mm -hmm. that was the key question. Um, So... That's the reasons why we have the limit, because uh, the, the airplane is already the size, or it's bigger than a 747. <laughs> it's the weight of a car, and that's a way, in fact, to reduce energy consumption. So we are the limit, uh, if you look at the energy we get, the energy we use, the possibility to fly through the night with energy we collect uh, during the uh, the day. The lowest level of batteries I had is was about uh, 10%. Mm. 
um, which means that with this 10%, I can cope with maybe uh, shorter days and longer nights, but certainly not towards winter. Uh, so I there's a limit, and the limit is somewhere end of August at this uh, at this latitude. I get anxious at 10% for my phone. So being on an airplane with 10% <laughs> of batteries left, I think, can certainly be anxi- can bring anxiety. Now, Gregory, uh, does weather get that much more complicated? That was the complicating factor coming here, I guess, with the hurricane season and with uh, the just global weather patterns you're watching. Um, making this longer pause here in Hawaii does at least release some of the pressure of trying to find a narrower and narrower window through the weather patterns, correct? Unquestionably, by Starting again in April when, or uh, May, let's say the end of April, beginning of May, we maximize the chances in terms of longer days and favorable weather patterns. Mm-hmm. You know, I was watching the, uh, you know, the timing after, let's say, leaving Nanjing, going to Nagoya, and looking at the, the windows that were, were, would open up. In fact, I think the choice of the window to get to Hawaii was probably the ideal because it was almost like a doldrum, right? I mean, there was hardly any wind at all. But then as you start to look at entering further into the hurricane season and you're starting to see all the storms coming in from the east eastern pacific i start to i started to wonder like if the aircraft is is uh susceptible to some of these high winds what were your thoughts uh, as you start to see getting closer and closer to this sort of the, the the peak of our sort of hurricane season well you have to find the windows of course which uh, w- w- which allows you to be away from these big dangers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it doesn't mean that when you have hurricanes that you cannot find a great window in between. Uh, but that's, that's part of the work we have to do. That's part of the work of the, of the weatherman uh, we have on both of these projects. And that's part of all the simulation modeling we have been doing over the, uh, over the years. So we have been uh, you know, flying virtually for the last seven years using the computer models to simulate what the airplane does. And so we could check if we could find the right window, if we could maintain this airplane in the right conditions, which are pretty tight. Huh? That's, uh, that's very true. But that's the experience we have built, and that's the experience we are using, in fact, to fly, uh, to fly around the world. You know, if you look at the pioneers, what they did 100 years ago, it's interesting because, they, of course, they had no models. They had no computers. They had no simulations available. So they were trying. You remember the guys who have succeeded, but you, we forgot the people who, uh, who disappeared, mm-hmm. who uh, missed their target, missed their objective. So it was more trial and error. And now with the tools we have, we can avoid doing this. We can get closer to the limits, but of course we have to accept to postpone from time to time the decision to go. Mm-hmm. That's true. I mean, it is life or death in many ways, and we p- perhaps forget the the many times where it didn't work for people versus when it did. When you talk about these windows and the pressures, uh, Andre, specifically about moving forward, I think about space shuttle launches and all of the studies that have come after space, sh- space shuttle launches or uh, missions that did not go well, and it's, it is about making decisions in an environment where there is pressures to proceed, where you have have narrow windows and people want you to move forward. Uh, Gregory, from the ground perspective, I can see that pressure watching the live stream from your control room where you know that there's all this energy of people saying, let's go, let's go, let's go. But you have to keep a level head and say, this is just not the right time. I mean, what are some of the pressures specifically that Andre talked about perhaps that you can speak to that were at your back as you're clearing the space to make a good decision? Well, there are, you know, there are many stakeholders involved in Solar Impulse. There are partner companies, there are universities and schools that we work with, the local airports, the governments, and things like that. And, you know, the first thing is telling them, we're going to come, but we can't tell you when we're going to come. And then we call them up and say, well, we think we can come next week, but we'll get back to you. And then we call them up two days before and say, it looks really good. 
Um, and then everybody starts to activate and talk about it, and then there are dinners organized and visits organized, and then you have to. So it's a moving target. So it's also, you know, people are used to, if I invite you for dinner, the first thing you're going to say is, when, when, when's dinner? Right. You know, next, <laughs> it's next Sunday. Mm-hmm. I'm saying, look, you're going to come for dinner, but it's going to be maybe next week, but I'll get back to you. Uh, but, but just think of it on a larger scale. How is the how is the reception because of all the different places that you've gone, the cultures that you have to interact with? You know, most people would probably think that uh, it might be rude if you don't make your appointment, and you know you're now delaying it by several weeks. How did you culturally overcome sort of the the uh, I guess the desire for the precision of you know showing up when you when you're saying you're showing up? Andre and I, for all the countries except Japan, because Japan wasn't planned, had visited. Um, so we work uh-huh, with all uh-huh. the. We, we start with the government um, uh, through our our partnership, our support of our of our home country from the Swiss Confederation. Um, we reach out to the government decision makers and then make our way through different the aviation authorities and then the, the airports. So we bring them into the picture. They understand that. So that we've done well in countries like China and India, but Japan wasn't planned. Mm-hmm. So Japan, we had to do this all within about a 12-hour, 15-hour period. And that was cons- very, very challenging. I would imagine, and, and uh, you know, assuming that the, they're receptive to having uh, a place for you and, and accommodating you know, a stay that might be undetermined, I mean, it's great that, that it happened. It worked out the way it did. Now, in, in terms of uh, the Honolulu stay, now that uh, there's a delay that may extend beyond, uh, let's say, um, into into 2016, uh, was that something that uh, the the people on the ground in Hawaii sort of um, might have known, or were they accommodating in in, in uh, being able to satisfy your now revised schedule? No, it was totally unplanned. Huh? The the plan was for us to stay a few days to do the uh, to do the maintenance. Uh, then we understood that it would take maybe a little bit longer to change the batteries before we really understood that it was for much longer. But what was fantastic is uh, uh, the immediate positive response we got from uh, everybody, uh, from the owner of the hangar, the, uh, the University of uh, Hawaii, uh, the airports, the airports authorities, the governor. I mean, everybody has immediately switched on helping mode Mm-hmm, and uh, mm-hmm. we are extremely grateful for this fantastic spirit that we found in your uh, in your island. You know, Andre, I would say both Japan and certainly Hawaii have, take a great deal of pride in its hospitality and accommodations for visitors. So I'm glad that that was that was available to you. Um, but I, I I wanted to ask you as well, personally, as someone who has piloted this plane, taking turns with uh, uh, your the other pilot to make this journey, and now there is this longer pause. And although you have this opportunity to regroup and maybe recharge, certainly after that test of endurance, um, what what does this long pause mean for you and your family, for example, and for the, the greater Solar Impulse team in terms of they're not going to be, the ground crew that follows the plane probably won't necessarily need to stay in Hawaii the entire time. So is there a dispersion, dispersion of them? Do they spend more time with their families or really uh, Hawaii is the place to be? No, it's very unfortunate that we cannot stay. I mean, the entire six months here, of course, mm-hmm. uh, we would love to. Uh, but no, we are, uh, part of them have to uh, have other activities in the, in the meantime. Uh, so everybody has to go back to uh, some, uh, you know, some of their tasks they have to perform. The same for me. Uh, so we'll be gone for a few weeks, for a few months, but we'll be back uh, certainly early next year. We'll be back also for public visits. 
uh, will be back for uh, to uh, to uh, interact with the universities with students that's part of the of the project so uh, i think it gives also opportunity to interact more with uh, with everyone here on the island mm-hmm. absolutely you know i, I want to also delve into the experience that you went through on this sort of historic 5 day flight over the uh, Pacific. So we'll take a short break. When we return, we'll continue our conversation with Andre Bursberg and Gregory Blatt and talk about Solar Impulse and its historic trans-Pacific flight. How does this accomplishment change the way we think of solar-powered transportation? Again, today's show is pre-recorded, so we won't be able to take your calls, but we hope you're still enjoying the conversation. This is Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa, and we are talking to Andre Borsberg and Gregory Blatt about clean energy and the future of journey of Solar Impulse. And, of course, today's show is pre-recorded, so we won't be taking any calls today. But right before the break, we were talking about the, uh, you know, the Trans-Pacific flight, the, the delay of Solar Impulse. But we want to get into perhaps the, uh, the challenges that come into play when having to make some really on the spot decisions and you know we were following it from uh, from Nanjing to uh, well actually from Nanjing to Hawaii and realizing that there was a decision at some point in time to uh, go to Nagoya and land in Nagoya and wait for another window to open and then there was another point uh, where Andre you were you were on the uh, runway ready to take off and there was a decision not to take off and I'm sure that that was just excruciatingly agonizing and then of course the other point of inflection was the you know the decision to fly from Nagoya and then the point of no return and how you know some of the thoughts that went in through your mind uh, with that so I guess what are some of the in in general like going from Nagoya I mean from Nanjing what did you think about when they decided you got to stop you got to you know you have to land in Nagoya instead of going all the way to Hawaii of course, I was disappointed because I was prepared for these uh, five days or even six days and nights uh, flights. Uh, we were now on our way, but you know, I know the the control center people extremely well since a long time. I mean, some of them uh, almost forty years. We were in the same squadron. We were 
flying the same jet in the Air Force, so we have really very, very strong ties. So I know that if they come up with a decision, and this case was a negative decision, they had really very good reasons for that. So I didn't want to discuss it. said, fine, uh, mm. if we have to do it, uh, we'll do it. Uh, but of course, you know, it was a disappointment. Uh, you have to change your mindset immediately. You have to accept it and you have to be very positive about it. And uh, you think about the consequences uh, afterwards. Of course, there were consequences because we were not uh, prepared, in fact, to go to Japan. So really, really, really had to reorganize all our logistics, everything in a few hours. And it was not so tough for me. It was really tough for the ground crew. I mean, for the people on the ground who received the airplane, we have to protect it. We had no hangar. We had to install what we call a mobile hangar. That's an inflatable structure uh, under difficult weather conditions. So they worked extremely hard. I think they worked more than 50 hours nonstop until they could secure the airplane, but they could do it. The airplane was saved, and this was a great moment. Mm-hmm. You know, Gregory, I, I know it's just a little bit, just a little bit of gray hair, and I, I, I wonder if that <laughs> might come from maybe that experience. I mean, I imagine that when the decision was made to divert, you had people actually preparing and flying to Honolulu to greet the plane, and already, and the, this this decision has to be made on a dime to have the infrastructure in place in Tokyo. I mean, so what was that probably 24-hour period like for you? It was actually a couple of days. It was more closer to 48 for me. But, um, um, yeah, it was it – was, we had teams moving at different different points. Um, some some people were already actually even, – even in Hawaii. Um, the first thing was identifying an airport uh, as an alternate, um, getting the authorization from that airport. Um, complicated when there's a language issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, we were very fortunate that Andre and I had met – Somebody in the um, in the aviation industry who worked out of that airport, and it was just perfect, absolute luck. So they were very instrumental in in get, in getting that um, authorization from the airport, but from also from the local um, um, traffic air traffic. We, we didn't really talk about that before, but that's another consideration that we work out flights is we can't just fly anywhere, right? So we have to you know work with local air traffic people, um, and then you know once you're on the ground, it's setting up an um, having an apron footprint where you know that's big enough that we can set up our mobile hangar, bring all the material we need to be bringing. You know, we brought in 300 tons of 100 tu- 100 c- trucks of concrete just to secure the mobile hangar because we were in Whoa. a rainy season in Japan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, so I noticed that there was a it was a really wet runway. <laughs> you know, Greg is a very modest guy. I mean, I tell you, he worked with the overdrive uh, 24 hours a day. Uh, to get the authorization. He's the person who deals with all the authorities in the different countries. Uh Uh, India, China, Japan, of course, the United States. And as he said, the languages are not the same. And, uh, I mean, to get authorization to install everything on the airports from uh, the different authorities in Tokyo, in Nagoya, was really tough. And he he worked extremely hard for that. And thanks to this, in fact, we, this was successful. So he did a wonderful job, I tell you. Mm-hmm. Now, when you uh, landed in Nagoya, uh, waiting for the window to open up, and, and I, I was just watching because, you know, it was a big event to try to now take off for Hawaii. And you were sitting on the runway for probably, what, the better part of a couple of hours? And what was going through your mind as, as, the, as the team on the ground in mission control basically decided, we're going to uh, we're gonna have to wait for another window to open? 
you need you need to be detached a little bit from the decision. So uh, if you are too involved, you take it. I don't want to say personally, but too emotionally. So uh, for me, uh, I felt already that you know the chances to uh, to postpone was there. Mm-hmm. So I was not totally surprised. But as I said, in fact, you need to be detached in some ways uh, to really accept it and 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 behave professionally. Uh, that's you know MCC with the control center in Monaco. They have the total transparency, understanding about what's going on, and uh, and again, in fact, I can only trust their their decision. The situation was completely different when we uh, when we uh, took off uh, for the third time. I mean, for the third the the, the the third time that we were trying from Nagoya a few days ago. Uh, because we uh, took off um, first to do a maintenance flight, so there was a technical part of it. And at the end of this uh, technical flight, there was a point of no return, and then we had to take the decision, are we ready to continue or not? And this was a very, very interesting and special moment, because uh, first, this was the first time uh, that we could do these five days, five nights flights. Mm -hmm. And uh, emotionally, it was difficult for everyone, in fact, to be able to take a decision because it's you go into the unknown, you go into something which was never done. Uh, Up to now, this was short flights and short flights uh, we have experience with. But this is really something that nobody did before. Then when we did the technical flight, we discovered that we uh, had some... uh, Equipments which were not functioning well, not the uh, the motors because this was fine, the solar generator was fine, the batteries at the time was fine, but support systems or systems to help the pilot to sleep and to rest, which was of course important for these long duration flights. So the airplane was not totally uh, ready, but the weather window looked great. I was feeling uh, extremely well. And leaving Japan was not easy uh, technically because of uh, all the traffic they have in the uh, in the island. Mm. So engineers were against it because, of course, they said the airplane is not in its nominal state. So mm. as it was not in their nominal state, you pilot should not go. But we, Bertrand, one side, my partner and myself in the cockpit, felt that you know looking at the entire uh, situation. Uh, that this was the right moment to leave. But I tell you, it's not an easy decision. I think it was the toughest decision I, I ever took, huh? in, also in terms of emotions. And I really thought about my family, I thought about my wife especially. You know, uh, Do I have the right to take this decision? Is it too risky? Am I making a mistake? Am I underestimating the risk? Or you know, is this the, uh, the right moment? So... Everything was happening more in my stomach than mm. in my brain at mm-hmm. this uh, at this moment, uh, but I felt that you know I could manage in fact these deficiencies that I could find a way to do it, knowing the aircraft extremely well now, and um, I, with the support of my uh, my partner Bertrand, I decided to go, and at this moment also ask everyone in the control center personally. Um, saying that first it was my responsibility, so we were not talking about responsibility, but if they were ready to support the flight entirely and support uh, my activities entirely because I needed, of course, their support. And one after next, they said, yes, we are fully with you and uh, we'll be there until the uh, the destination. But this was really a special moment for me, I tell you. Mm-hmm. Um, I can only rebound off that and having, um, when Andre had called the, to 
different team heads and the engineers. I was I participated in that now probably seven years of being affiliated with the project. I'll always remember that phone that 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 conversation. But what's interesting that that conversation had to be made while Andre was in the plane. Um, what's 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 particularly challenging in a situation like that is the case of Andre. He has several roles. He's a co-founder. He's a pilot. He's a CEO. He built the plane and overall responsible for the whole mission strategy. So when you're in a situation like that, he has to wear several hats. And really, ideally, he should be wearing only the pilot hat. But there were other factors that came into that. Mm -hmm. And that's where the decision-making becomes so complex. And by the way, he was doing this while flying a plane in very busy air traffic control space and having to deal with all these issues um, and talking to different people through it. So it was a extremely challenging for the pilot, for the co-founders, for Beltron, for, for, for everybody. And we had a deadline. And we had to, we, you mentioned the point of no return. So we were watching the clock tick. You know, as, as we got closer to that point of return, so it wasn't that we could, oh, we'll come back to the decision in two hours. We really had to make that decision pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, with all the different uh, uh, voices that or hats that you had to wear, the people or the, the, the uh, positions that you represent, was there anyone that, stood out that were was the dominant sort of character that made your decision or did you find the balance across all of those different hats that you had to wear well i think i i really thought about uh the pilot position at this moment because uh you know you you you, you cannot play with that i mean it's uh it's it's a real life situation and in some ways boy you have the airplane at risk but in some ways you also have your uh, your life at risk so i really try to uh, estimate if i was uh, in the in the position to make sure that i knew how to handle the airplane with these deficiencies that we had mm -hmm. or if i if i was overestimating myself uh, and I had the chance, in fact, to fly uh, two days, almost two days, two nights, a uh, few weeks before from China to Japan, where I could train part of it. So I based this on the experience I could collect then, which was very helpful. And I really thought, yes, you can handle it. Yes, uh, I think it's, it's, it's feasible. And on top of it, I also felt, looking at the weather window, that this is the right moment. You know, you have in life where you know uh, that's the moment I should do that because I believe it's right. Uh, I believe uh, uh, um, uh, everything, in fact, is organized in such a way that you have to go in this direction. There's something on 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 uh, above the rational that you can that you can address, which helps you to decide. And this is something also that you feel inside yourself, and that's really what I felt at this moment. And uh, that's the reasons why I, g I give you to go. Mm -hmm. You know, that your description of that moment of truth is is breathtaking. And mm -hmm. I, I can imagine. And I think that moment comes for many of the great explorers that we think of where it has to happen now. And it is life or death. You have the many hats. You have your family to look, think of and your your solar impulse family. But something drives you that way. Uh, I did want to ask a little bit about that endurance uh, experience, though, because five days aboard a plane is something. I mean, we uh, normal mortals will start falling apart after five hours on a commercial plane with a lot of space in the bathroom and movies. So uh, I remember at the landing, I talked uh, with your daughter, Ella, and she said that we had the laptop on the kitchen counter and you could just hear your breathing as you're flying. And just by the change in the tempo of the breathing of your flying, they can tell if you're working on something or if you're resting. But 
when you're in such a confined and isolated environment, I mean, how do you keep sane for five days in the air like that? I think, first of all, it's to have the right mindset. Uh, and I prepared for that since almost 10 years, and I mentally prepared for that also. I don't want to say every day, but uh, but regularly. So I could, I could imagine myself being in this cockpit and trying to uh, visualize what I would do, the way I would do it. And this helped me to create all the time a very positive mindset because I had the impression I lived this in some ways already be, before. Then I used, uh, uh, I mean, what you could call techniques, and I practiced yoga since uh, since about 20 years, uh, meditation. And in, in yoga, you learn to uh, become an observer and observe yourself. And when you observe yourself, and especially in stressful situations, you start to take some distance, and maybe it helps to dissociate yourself from, you know, the stress, the stress itself. And uh, by by seeing that, um, you uh, you take distance from uh, from this situation, and you you change the way you react. And that's what I also uh, uh, experienced during the flight. Uh, so it's not only a question of making the body functioning better. Is it's more uh, making the mind uh, keeping the right attitude. No, that and that is uh, that is great, and I, I really uh, appreciate uh, sort of that insight into how to deal with stress in probably the most <laughs> stressful situation. You Andre, know, I know that uh, you wear many many hats, and as a result, you're a very busy person. So I understand that we might need to let you go uh, for for the remainder of our program. Is that correct? Yes, unfortunately, but uh, but uh, Greg. And I think Greg will talk about the very the very interesting part of what we do. It's the why, the why we do this project. Yes, yeah. and we'll be looking forward to this. So Andre Borsberg is the co-founder of the Solar Impulse, and uh, he is going to be stepping up for now, but we will continue our conversation with uh, Gregory Blatt of Solar Impulse. Thank you very much, Andre. It's a pleasure to have you in the studio. It was a great pleasure to be together. Thank you. You're listening to Bite Marks Cafe.
Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And we are still in the studio here with Greg Blatt talking about the Solar Impulse journey. And, of course, uh, Greg, so now that the, the decision has been made and and uh, there's going to be a, a lengthy period of time between now and, and next year, uh, what, what, is the, what is the primary goal now for Solar Impulse and the message that you want to now convey as you have this little break uh, to, to probably, you know, readjust and, and refocus that message? Um, I think fundamentally the message, the message doesn't change um, in terms of the why we're doing this. Um, whether we did it over one year or over two years. Keep going. Okay. Um, the question really is about, um, you know, what is Solar Impulse about? And it's really a project, um, a project that is aimed to promote uh, renewable energy, clean technologies, and energy savings. Um, it's not so much about changing the face of aviation, uh, but it's really showing what what you can do with these technologies. And let's face it, in an airplane, you can't cheat. Mm. So if we can make this airplane fly with these technologies that are readily available, um, think about what we can do in terms of energy efficiency and energy savings on the ground, in transportation, in heating, uh, in cooling systems. And that's really what the project is about. The airplane becomes a technological demonstration and the communication mechanisms. So uh, in terms of um, the connections that you want to make with uh, the right people, uh, who, is, who is it that you want to get this sort of message to? I mean, who are the influencers that you want to uh, get them to sort of start thinking about the future is clean? That's um, that's the the beauty of solar impulses being responsible for communications. Um, I get to we get to communicate. I call it to the six to sixty year olds. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. You, we we work with young children and university students, right through to um, business business leaders and to government decision makers and to every everybody in between. Um, and a lot of our activities. So we do this while we're flying, while we're on the ground. In between seasons, we do a lot in, in schools and in universities, and uh, our fact that we're staying um, in Hawaii, um, being hosted by the University uh, by the university of Hawaii, we will actually be doing things with their students, lectures, presentations, uh, um, technology exchanges, which is actually fantastic. And we're doing this with other schools as well, and we do Google Hangouts and mm-hmm. conferences and things like that. So uh, over the period of these uh, next sort of uh, nine months, do you see some new programs being rolled out, some activities being done, some events that keep people's attention on the future is clean and solar impulse. Sure. Um, one of those important events is um, is the COP21 20, process. For those um, um, who don't know about that, that's what we call the Intergovernmental Conference on Climate Change. Mm-hmm. We know it from Kyoto, from Copenhagen, from Rio. Um, solar impulse is very active. Um, and one of the things we're actually doing um, during this flight under a platform that we started called The Future is Clean um, is a way for the public to participate. It's just a question of going to that s- website, uh, futureisclean.org or our website, and just um, um, signing up and saying, you know, we support A Future is Clean. And that's Andre and Beltran are going to go with X amount of signatures you know, to the COP21, to the political decision makers. And that was another constituency that we that we deal with in trying to push them um, in putting into place a favorable climate for clean technologies. And we're not about so much about, um, uh, about green, we're more about clean, um, uh, in the sense that we think clean technologies is 
um, a way of the future of getting the energy balance right. It's creating jobs. It's not hindering. It's not about paying more for things. It's ma- about making things more efficient and more ac- accessible. Mm-hmm. And this is the agenda we're pushing with the government and with all these signatures that we've collected while we've been flying around the world. It gives us a certain voice um, um, to, to communicate these objectives. Mm-hmm. We know I love when you say 6 to 60 because that means my daughter and I are in the target market. We were there at the landing and many people came out to see the plane come in. And I remember saying to my daughter, you know, I think in your future you're going to say to your children, you're, you won't believe this, but there was a time that to get from point A to point B, we would had to dig up the the decayed remains of old dinosaurs and set fire to it in order to get somewhere because you here are seeing a solar power flight without using a drop of fuel. I mean, there's a lot of blue sky thinking that I think really inspires the next generation. But I think a lot of people, what, what do you say, the skeptics who say, well, look at the large infrastructure that was required to make this, to build this plane and make this operation. How can you possibly see a path from this to a clean future where everything is like this, considering what it took to build the Solar Impulse 2? Sure. And, you know, it would be, it would be um, unwise to say, you know, we're, um, that, you know, we're a carbon neutral project. Our plane is made of carbon and carbon, as we know, comes from petrol based. um, But, you know, you have to start somewhere. To begin, and, it, and it's a long process, and it won't happen tomorrow. Um, and we're not, you know, w- there won't be solar power planes, and in, in maybe you, our generation, maybe not in your daughters, but maybe in her, her daughter's um, um, generation. But it will take projects such as yourself, as ourselves, to to make that paradigm. You know, the, the example I always use is um, the paradigm shifts don't always come from where we think they come from. It should have been Kodak that de- developed digital photography. Kodak doesn't exist. Um, it should have been four, or should be four, General Motors, Mercedes, BMW, who's changing the automobile industry, and it's not. It's Elon Musk and and, and a car called Tesla, and I'm sure you've spoken mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. about that many times on, on on this show. And it's really sometimes that people from outside, you know, when we wanted to build the airplane, everybody said it was impossible. We actually went to the Boeing's, the Airbuses, the Sailgrass manufacturers, and they said it was impossible. The advantage we had, we didn't have any money, and we didn't know it was impossible. You know, that, I think that is uh, quite amazing because uh, just the history of, of uh, both pilots and the involvement uh, of, of Andre, who, who actually was involved with the engineering of Solar Impulse. And then you folks uh, built a Solar Impulse 1, did that a, as a, a test plane, sure. and the, the lessons learned from that. And then, of course, building <laughs> everything that went into Solar Impulse 2. That's not a trivial thing. And, uh, you know, when having the... Uh, experts or the you know the the existing aircraft manufacturers tell you you know you can't do it. I'm, I'm, I'm it's it's just testament to the innovation and willpower that the, your team has put together to build Solar Impulse too. When they in in you know when I talked to uh, Andre Belton about eight seven or eight years ago when I joined the project, and I asked them I said well, why you know I'm not an engineer and I'm not a pilot. Why would you want someone like myself? And I said that's exactly why we want you. And they were amazing in being able to, to, of course, there are a lot of people from the aviation industry, but to assemble a group of about 100 people um, from all different backgrounds and experience and all different ages. You know, we have young engineers and we have NASA, NASA um, uh, um, uh, astronauts mm. with us as mm-hmm. well and everything in between. And that's what makes it very, very special. And, and again, not being constrained by this is the way we've done it in the past and this is the way we have to do it in the future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm curious between Solar Impulse 1 and Solar Impulse 2, what were some of the things that you learned? Or when people say that it's impossible, 
what aspect of it just blew their minds that you would be able to carry enough batteries that it would be able to stay aloft or i mean what were the things that other engineers entrenched engineers in the existing mindset uh, thought you weren't able wouldn't be able to to get over well as we mentioned it was really about um you know perpetual flight can you um can you store enough energy? Um, can you make a plane that's energy efficient, which allows you to fly during the day and store enough energy during the night? And um, obviously, the heavier the airplane is, the more energy you need. So it was really a question of battling the elements of weight mm-hmm. um, and making optimizing everything. We took a cockpit, um, which was normally with the equipment that we had in it was about 80 kilos, and we brought it down to less than 20 kilos. And then, mm. of course, all the equipment. You see that Andre, he's a, he's a big fella, right? And mm-hmm. he has his parachute and, um, and, his, and, his, and his life vest and all the food. So really, the, that was a trick, is building that plane that could handle the plane itself is light, right? But we have a payload of about 300 kilos, um, you know, with the pilot and uh, his weight and all his food, his water, his oxygen and things like that. Well, you know, you bring up a good point. Uh, y- y- there's not a whole lot of wiggle room in that cockpit. And when you talk about five days worth of food, which basically has to be in arm's length, I mean, <laughs> there was, there's probably a design uh, uh, feature just to have it easily accessible. Yeah. Uh, well, it's actually more than accessible. Is what do they eat in five days, considering you don't have heating systems, uh, um, you don't have a stove, right. uh, you, you know, and you have to find a good, a good diet which fills them up, um, which is easy to eat, easy to use, and, 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 and also works well for their stomach in extreme conditions because don't forget they're going up to, um, to 28,000 feet without, uh, without uh, you know, pressurized cabin with oxygen. So we worked with, um, with one of our partners, Nestle Health Sciences, um, the division of the Nestle Food, food Group, on developing foods, and each of them have are built differently, have different tastes, different needs, body needs. So together with them, and nutritionists and some doctors, and the following, um, went through three or four years, and really at the end of the day, it was very. It's actually pretty good food. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in a plastic bag that you rip open, and that creates a chemical reaction which heats up the food. So you had risotto, you had stews, you had chickens, and they they, they ate actually quite well. Well, you're making me hungry. Well, you know, it's a, it's a pity that Andre's not here, but perhaps that's a good thing because I did want to ask about the other common question that came up when people even saw the cockpit on the news. They said, well, there's, okay, so there's a person in there. He's there for five days. I know what he's going to ask. Okay, I know he's what drinking. What, what happens after happens the food? What happens after that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, another company, and that's, again, the, the, the beauty of Solar Impulse. It's 90 companies working together for looking for creative solutions, and that's the business model of, of, of the project. Um, um, and in this, this case, it was another company that worked with in developing a seat, uh, which has an integrated toilet, which allows it re- to recline in different positions so that he can, sl- he can do his resting, he can do his yoga, he can do his stretching. And that seat development was, I guess, about three or four years. And these are all the things that we did after, you know, from the first airplane mm-hmm. to the second airplane, as well as putting the pilots in a simulator for three days. And three nights in, um, in, in, in our home country in Switzerland to train them and also monitor them, the whole body functions about eating, sleeping, resting. When you sleep for 20 minutes and then you have an emergency, so we have to test their vigilance, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So things like that. So we went through, Andre was very modest when he said, um, you know, the training he went through. This has been very, very extensive for both pilots. You know, when you talk about the uh, typical, let's say, daily routine, and you talk about 20 minutes of sleep, 
does that translate to how many hours of being awake? Is it four hours, five hours, ten hours, twelve? <laughs> What's it's about, that? It's about um, it's about twelve times twenty minutes. Uh huh. Uh-huh. You know, so it's about four and a half hours of sleep a, um, a, a day, or maybe a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, di- di- at different intervals. But it's like only taking power naps. There's the, when you're doing the 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 monitoring and such. It doesn't sound like he's going to have an opportunity to get into what they say, what they describe as deep sleep, right? Or or was he able to reach that deep level of sleep for that uh, rejuvenation when he wakes up? It was interesting because we talked about the different sleeps he had, and um, and um, he said when you 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 get into a good sleep, but you're always a little bit awake and. Um, those who have done long-distance car travel or sailors, and they, they'll tell you the same thing. They sleep for 20 minutes, but they're very in tune to all the noises, and they can hear the wind changes and things like that. So mm-hmm. you find that. But it, the first couple of days, he, was, he, he, it was, he wasn't really into it. I was actually getting a little bit worried about that, that he wasn't barpoosing at the end. He was, he was fantastic. When he was circling over Hawaii, we were waiting for the good weather. Right, that's why we didn't land right away. So he was doing his he was doing his naps over the ocean and things like that. And that's why, you know, everybody said, "How did he look so good when he landed?" Right. Oh yeah. He had a nap before he landed. (laughs) I I I, uh, noticed that there was a a fellow that came up and and was massaging his legs, but I'm not sure if he even even needed that. Yeah. Well, he did some. You know, he does all his yoga and stuff like that. But we had to be careful because he had been sitting, and then we had to stand him up. And you know, you just have to be careful. There's also his equilibrium and Mm -hmm, things mm -hmm, like that. mm -hmm. But he was in remarkably good shape. I mean, I have to say, this guy is 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 just doesn't doesn't stop. I mean, he he, you saw him when he landed. (laughs) He did about three hours of press work. He went to sleep for an hour. He did more press in the afternoon. He had another sleep for about 20 minutes, and then we went out and had a steak together. <laughs> well, there, was the press, there was the whole press conference standing on stage and yeah. speaking very eloquently, yeah. too, in the middle of that. Exactly. Now, the nerd in me was w- wanted to ask you uh, about the technology that allows this high level of communication with an aircraft that is so small and so uh, with limited power. You know, uh, people in Hawaii will always say that we can't even get Wi-Fi on our flights going across, and even if you did, it would be like dial-up. But here we were able to watch video live of him in the cockpit, even when he was at 30,000 feet and just the sound again of his breathing coming through and really, I think, touching an emotional chord that way. Uh, how, was, how was that possible? Is that something that you also had to engineer on your own to make happen? We've been working on this um, through our different missions and uh, over the, you know, I guess about five years. We have a brilliant multimedia team. So we have a, um, a broadcasting studio in Monaco. Um, we have onboard cameras. We have uh, the ability to, um, to broadcast you know, stream and broadcast live. So we have cameramen on the runway that can write off their cameras that can broadcast. Um, so we've been following the latest technology, um, broadcasting technology um, on how to do that. And we actually taught ourselves, really. Um, so when the when the plane was uh, in flight, were you leveraging satellite communications as exactly. the primary means? Exactly. And that's how the, and don't forget, the, the mission control acts as the sort of the co-pilot because mm-hmm. you only have one person. Mm-hmm. So there, we're in touch with him all the time. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, some of the uh, uh, materials that went into Solar Impulse, I, I, I was kind of looking at the underneath of the wing. And, and you know, of course, normally with these uh, big aircraft, there's big metal. But when I looked up, it was almost like a fabric. And and it, it attributes to, the I guess, the lightness of the, uh, uh, the aircraft. But I'm curious, how much uh, did the, the material get tested? And how did you decide through Solar Impulse 1 and Solar Impulse 2 that this was the right material, given the fact that, you know, we've been following this uh, low-density uh, parachute that's uh, being tested on, on Kauai, and 
the material that they're using, you know, under the stress of the wind is is um, basically breaking up. So how did you go through the different kinds of material testing to determine what was right for solar impulse? Oh, well, forget that the project is you know is twelve years, so it's taken probably a little bit longer than we thought when mm-hmm, when, when mm-hmm. they when they started, precisely because the testing uh, and trying of different materials um, and testing it out, and of course we we uh, we test them in in workshops, and then we bring in specialists or we send them to other li- laboratories who specialize in wind tunnels and stress testing and things like that. But really, at the end of the day, it was about weight and stress. You know, how light can you get without it breaking? And that's really the, um, and it's interesting enough with this airplane, it's it's more fragile on the ground than it is in the air. That's what I understand because, you know, even... people holding up the wings. When right, right. And, and, and even the flight was, uh, you know, had to be in the evening because if it were to be sitting out on the runway during the daytime, that's when it would be affected by the sun and, and the material would be potentially damaged. Exactly. And overheating, damage of the fabric, and also... Um, we fly landing and takeoffs are at night because the, the winds are typically are, are calmer. Mm-hmm. So uh, you, as we've discussed, you've announced today that uh, there will be a longer stay in Honolulu than previously thought, but there are many upsides to that, especially, I would have to say, for Honolulu to have you here. Um, but as you have uh, this opportunity to continue to focus on the outreach piece as well as um, bringing the, the aircraft back up to its pristine state, um, where can people go? What are the ways, and I think there are many, for people to keep track of the progress of the Solar Impulse Project? Sure. I mean, the starting point is, of course, is our website, and um, um, where we have a very active um, um, web presence, and we're constantly communicating, and you can sign up for newsletters and uh, other pieces of information. I mentioned the future of clean, of course, Andre and Bo- Andre and Beltran, actually Andre on in flight was spending a lot of time on Twitter on his Facebook, mm-hmm, on Facebook, mm-hmm. and we have of course was he tweeting? He sure. was actually tweeting. Oh, yeah. oh good. Oh, so yeah. he's first person Twitter, right? Oh, yeah, Great. he's first person. Both of them are. Uh-huh. Um, they tweet themselves, and but of course we have, have teams and things like that. So we use all the social media, um, uh, the tools, and um, and we produce a lot. Um, so we're right now we're producing. Uh, in the next couple of days, uh, we're going to do the best of Hawaii. So everything <laughs> from our takeoff in Nagoya to our landing and what we did on the ground. Very and, good. And of course, when we're back in the in the early winter, when after our, you know when we start to reinstall the batteries and set up shop here, we'll have some public days, and we invite all your listeners to come see us. We will absolutely good. spread the word about those. Say, Gregory Blatt is the managing director and uh, kind of like the pilot on the ground for Solar Impulse, and we want to. Thank you for sticking around and joining us uh, on Bite Marks Cafe. Great to be with you. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week and we'll learn about the General Assembly of the International Astronomical Union, the world's largest meeting of astronomers, coming next month. And if you miss any part of this, edi- it's this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And, of course, if you have any comments or suggestions, you can, fee- you can, t- you can email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. Of course, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. You can follow me at Hawaii and Solar Impulse at Solar Impulse. Our engineer is David Chung, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Koslovic. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band called Communions and a song called Out of My World. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe.